Hey, welcome back. Welcome back. Do you guys have a good spring break? I, I went to Disney World, and it was amazing. Guys, I, here's a fun story I wasn't going to tell, but I'll tell it. I, it's not that I chose not to tell it. I just didn't think about telling it. I, I went to go get my hair cut uh, from a barber. First time I'd met him. It was like, shh, listen up. It was like sort of like a bougie barber. Like I spent way too much money on this barber, but I was like, hey, I'm going to go and try it out. And he was really sweet. He was really cool. And I told him we were going to Disney World with my family. He goes, oh, do you guys have a lot of kids in your family? I was like, well, the youngest coming on the trip's 18. Uh, so no. And the oldest is, is 58 and I'm 27. <laughs> and it was good. And he said, what's your favorite ride? And I said, Winnie the Pooh. And he was like, you're kidding. And I was like, no, I'm not. I, I know. I know. You don't care. Hey, uh, if we've never met before, my name is Matt Velasco. So glad that you are here tonight. You've by now seen this or heard this dozens of times, but we say that tonight, Wednesday night, is the best night of the week. And, and we believe that Wednesday night is the best night of the week, no matter where you are spending time with Jesus on a Wednesday night, whether it's this youth ministry or a different youth ministry. And so if you are a guest with us tonight, thank you for coming. I would love to meet you. And I'm not just saying that. I genuinely would love to meet you. Come introduce yourself to me afterwards. And we'd love to have you come back on another week too if, if, uh, if you'd like to. You are more than invited back. So tonight, we're going to start a new series called Sight Lines where we're going to be talking about the sight lines of the heart. And what we mean by that is simply knowing what is actually going on in your heart. Right? So a couple of weeks ago we had similar conversations, but this is all about where your eyes are looking. How you are thinking of others, how you are thinking of yourself. And so tonight we're going to talk about this topic called self-righteousness. But before I get to that, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent about how much I hate the month of April. It, okay, it is the wor it's one of the worst months unless your birthday's in it. Then whatever. But okay, people are like, April's so great. We're so close to summer. No, we're not. Like we're, I mean, April, you're amazing, but you're not the month. You're not the month. None of my, th my this April hate is, is driven towards that April. Her name's actually April, obviously. But so April's a terrible month unless your birthday's in it. It's a horrible month, right? Because here's what we get in April. Maybe like two 60-degree days, we're going to have a stupid like 75-degree day in the middle of it, and we get snow every other day. And all we keep saying is like, yeah, but it was 60 two weeks ago. It is just a fake spring. All April is, is a fake spring. It's the worst. Yes, summer's on the horizon. That's true. We like us a good summer right here in Minnesota. You know what we say? We have terrible winter, but we got three really good months of summer, and that's why you should live here. April's also terrible. Again, not you, April. April the month is also terrible. Andre's like, you're talking bad about my mom. I'm going to come at you. I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about the month. It's also terrible. And everyone who's a leader has probably already thought about this because of one reason, taxes. Taxes are the worst. They're awful. And I'm not going to go on a political rant here, but I am going to say it's the dumbest thing in the whole entire world that the IRS knows exactly how much money I owe them. They know. They know how much money I owe them, but they're not going to tell me. They're going to make me go through all these different hoops to figure out how much I owe them, and it's so complicated, and so I just pay a very kind woman by the name of Kim to do my taxes for me, $250 a year, 
just to do my taxes because they're so complicated during the month of April. April is terrible. Sam, what are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, see, April's terrible. It's horrible. It is, it is so bad. And really, it's mostly because of taxes, right? Tax season is the worst season. For me, it starts and it ends in April, but it is stressful, it is annoying, and it's sometimes, honestly, really, really difficult. And throughout all of human history, or civilized human history, taxes have been this greatly despised thing. Take, for example, um, most of ancient history, those people who are known as the tax collectors. They were hated. Say, for instance, the tax collectors of Jesus' day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I went to school for this. <laughs> it's pretty good. But tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society. They were third uh, level lackeys for the Roman tax system. And if you didn't know this, Rome would essentially um, take captive various kingdoms and countries and then impose their tax systems onto them, uh, onto the, the conquered people, Israel included. But the collection of those taxes that were made by the emperor, in this case Caesar, were actually delegated off to like private Roman companies. So it would be like the IRS going to various tax companies and say, like, hey, collect our taxes for us. There's a huge system that went to it. And then those tax companies that the Roman government would delegate it to would then hire what were known as tax farmers. The tax farmers were the ones who actually collected the tax, but they didn't do the actual collecting. They had what were called tax collectors do it for them. And so you might be asking, Matt, why were Jewish people collecting taxes for Rome? Because the tax collectors were employed by these tax farmers. And you might be thinking, to do such a scummy job, to do something uh, uh, that was literally like religious and ethnic betrayal, they had to be paid pretty good. But here's the thing, tax collectors weren't even paid. We think that like they were paid a huge lump sum. They weren't. All of the money they made was money they stole. And it was money that they were given permission to steal by their bosses, the tax farmers. They were allowed to keep whatever they were able to steal or extort from their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so, for example, if a person owed the equivalent of $100, the collector, the tax collector, would say to them, you owe $200. And they'd pocket the extra 100 No questions asked. They were thieves. Such tax collectors were considered monsters, and in fact, some actually were. They were religious and political and ethnic traitors to Jewish society. They were disallowed from public offices and were barred from giving testimony in court for being such vicious liars. They were outcasts, untouchables. And the nearest equivalent, scholars say, in the modern society would be a drug dealer or a pimp. Someone who preys on society and makes money off of other people's bodies and makes a living off of stealing from others. Tax collectors were evil. On the other hand, in ancient Jewish society, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were the most highly esteemed group in Jewish culture. 
No Pharisee would ever sell out his people for gain. Like everyone else, they too were victims of the tax collectors. You could count on a Pharisee to love the Bible and God's law and attempt to uphold it. They were religiously, culturally, morally, and ethically trusted and adored. And so if we put on the eyes of first century Jewish people, then we would see that the tax collector is the bad guy. And the Pharisee is the good guy. Tax collectors to ancient Jews, evil. Pharisees, good. And that's what makes what we're actually going to read tonight so shocking. We're going to read a parable, which is just a story about the dangers of a specific sin in order to set people free. And the parable we're going to read tonight is about righteousness versus self-righteousness. And before we actually read it, I want to define those two terms for you. And so you can take a look at the screens. I have that up there for you. It, it is this. Righteousness is when you place your awe in God. Self-righteousness is when you place your awe in yourself. Righteousness is when you place your awe in God. Self-righteousness is when you place your awe in yourself. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Did anyone go anywhere fun for spring break? Obviously, nothing's more fun than Disney World or the Winnie the Pooh ride, but anything else? No? Wow. Literally nothing. Someone went somewhere cool. Where'd you go? Oh, yeah, I've been there before. Did you get any hole-in-ones? I'm going to be honest. I would not have guessed that Can-Can Wonderland was going to come out of your mouth, but I love that. I really enjoy that. They have good pizza there. I took my wife there once. Fun fact. Okay. Luke chapter 18. Guys, remember when I tricked all of you and made you think my wife was pregnant? That was funny, right? You remember that? No? Anders, you remember? It was funny. Okay. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of all that I get. Jesus continues, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you that you have brought us back here to Next High School here at Grace Church, Lord. I just pray for everyone in this room that tonight we would become more aware of you, that we would fall deeper in love with you, God, and that we would understand what it is that you would want us to know from this scripture. Lord, we praise things in your name. Amen. So at this point in scripture, 
Jesus is actually in the presence of the elite of Jewish society. So he's in a room filled with Pharisees. He's in a room that's filled with Pharisees, and these are the people that everyone else would have compared themselves to. Parents would want their children to be righteous like the Pharisees. When they would walk through the city, people would mimic how they walked and how they talked because of their closeness to God's law. They were the ones people wanted to be like. And yet, the words we just read are what Jesus says to them, the Pharisees. And so I want to read that one more time for you through that lens. He says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That just means that they put others beneath them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a good guy, a Pharisee. The other, an evil guy, a tax collector. The good guy standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the bad guy, the evil one, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the bad guy, the person you deem to be bad, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what we see here is that Jesus is brutally confronting the realities of self-righteousness in the lives of the Pharisees. And for many of us, he is brutally confronting us with the realities of our self-righteousness. And so tonight we're going to talk about the signs that you are self-righteous like a Pharisee. Not all of them, but what I think are three of the most important signs that you are self-righteous like the Pharisees. These signs are these. The first one, you think you're saved by what you don't do. You think you're saved by what you don't do. The second one is this, people who aren't Christian are afraid to talk to you. People who aren't Christian are afraid to talk to you. And the third, you aren't honest with yourself about your sin. You aren't honest with yourself about your sin. Start the first. You think you're saved by what you don't do. You know you are self-righteous when you sound like the Pharisee who says this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. Or even like that tax collector. Or maybe for you it sounds more like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other students, the ones who lie, the ones who party on the weekends, the ones who have had sex, or even like that trans student. To be self-righteous often means that maturity in Christ is being so much like God that you don't need him anymore. At least you don't think you need him anymore. As long as you can say you don't do certain things, then you are good to go. You are in awe of yourself and your so-called maturity. 
But true righteousness is quite the opposite. It's recognizing your own sin, your own depravity. That means your own brokenness apart from God and surrendering to God's grace. Rather, righteousness sounds like this. God, I thank you that I don't struggle like some of my friends do with sex, but I know that I still need so much of your grace because though I don't struggle with sex, I can't stop judging those around me who sin differently than me. I would ask you this question. Is your focus on the sins you don't commit or the sins you do commit? Because if your focus is on what you don't do, then chances are you are self-righteous like the Pharisee. So the first one, you think you are saved by what you don't do. The second, people who aren't Christian are afraid to talk to you. This one's going to sting a little bit. Let me ask you this straight up. Do you have any friends who don't know Jesus? And I'm not talking about that friend who comes to church with you every week. They say they're a Christian, but you know they're not. Like they claim it, but you know due to some supernatural ability that they're not actually a Christian. Like there's no way they are. No, I am talking about someone who hates the church. Are you friends with someone who just despises the church? Friends who actively choose not to believe. Friends who are Muslim. Friends who are Jewish. Friends who are Hindu. Do they exist in your life? It is so easy for us as people, not just Christians, as people to be tribal with our friends. To sit at tables filled with Christians and maybe even cheer on someone who is braver than you, who goes and joins another table of those who are not. But when was the last time someone joined your table? When was the last time someone asked to sit with you because they wanted to get closer to whatever it is that you believe in? Now, I obviously don't know the ins and outs of your friendships in your schools, but I wonder, are non-Christians afraid to talk to you? Are students a part of the LGBTQIA plus community afraid to talk to you? Are students a part of the Young Democrats group afraid to talk to you? Are students of other religions afraid to talk to you? Are students from other denominations of the church afraid to talk to you? Are these students afraid to talk to you because of how you've spoken about them or to them in the past? Because if the answer is yes, then chances are you are self-righteous like the Pharisee who looked down upon all of the other people and said, God, I thank you. I am not like them. True righteousness is sitting at the table with people who you might be afraid of. Afraid of their questions. Afraid of their language. Afraid of their beliefs. What I love about the life of Jesus is Jesus didn't open up his doors to his house for the lost to come to him. He went to the doors of the lost and asked for himself to go and sit at their table. He said, hey, let's hang out. Let's have a meal at your place. 
If you want to be righteous, then stop expecting people to come to you and start going to them. For Jesus, it meant that people opened up their doors to their house for the Savior to come to them. I wonder, the people I listed, if you knocked on their door, would, you let the, would they let you in? Would they be excited to see you? Or would their heart sink for the poison they've heard come out of your mouth? The first one, you think you are saved. You know you are self-righteous when you think you are saved by what you don't do. The second one is people who are not Christian are afraid of you. And the third one, you aren't honest with yourself about your sin. There are two postures in the parable that we read. The self-righteous Pharisee who never repented of anything and the righteous tax collector who repented and pleaded for mercy. Paul says this in Philippians 3. I won't have this on the screen for you, but if you want to turn to it, it's Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. It says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul in the book of Acts refers to himself as the Pharisee descendant from Pharisees. What he means by that is that he was raised by Pharisees to be a Pharisee. He was the dude in school, and he actually tells us he was in school for many, many years. He was deeply educated in the Jewish faith. He was the dude in school who people likely walked by and thought, I want to be more like him. He was the dude across the street that parents were probably like, why can't you be more like Paul? Or Saul was his name back then. Why can't you be more like Saul? Why can't you obey like Saul? Why can't you know scripture like Saul? Why can't you live like Saul? This dude was as self-righteous as they came before he met Jesus. He followed the law and thought that that meant he was taken care of. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he was like the Pharisee in this parable and believed that he was all good because he wasn't like them, whoever those sinners were. But after Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, he realizes something about that self-righteousness. He says he counts it all as rubbish, as trash, as garbage. The self-righteousness of a Pharisee belongs in a trash heap because it isn't righteousness at all. It contains no awe of God, only awe of self. When the Pharisee in Jesus' parable approached the Lord in prayer, there was no longing for forgiveness on his tongue. Instead, it was the Pharisee puffing his chest out before the God of all creation. Hey God, look at me. Aren't you proud I'm not like him? 
And in contrast, there is the tax collector who was beating his chest, almost forcing himself not to even puff his chest before God. He knew how sinful he was, so he beat his chest in, pleading before the God of all creation, saying, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to this sinner. The Pharisee was all about himself, and the tax collector was all about God. The Pharisee's prayer and understanding of his sin was self-righteous, and the tax collector's prayer and understanding of his sin was righteous. And so let me ask you a question, which are you? When you pray, which are you? Do you have an understanding of your sin? Has your attention to sin turned more towards the sins of the world than to the sins of yourself? Is it easier for for you to think about the sins of your friends or for your sins? If I asked you, hey, what's your name of your best friend? You told me the name of your best friend. I said, what's the number one sin that you see them commit? How quickly could you answer? If I asked you, what's the number one sin you commit? How quickly could you answer? Which one's faster? Which one are you more aware of? See, I think it's ironic that the self-righteous Pharisee's prayer was all about other people's sin, while the righteous tax collector's prayer was all about their own sin. Friends, if your focus is on others' sin instead of your own, then chances are you are self-righteous like the Pharisee. So first, three ways you can know you are self-righteous. The first one, you think you're saved by what you don't do. The second one is people who are not Christian are afraid to talk to you. And the third one, you aren't honest with yourself about your sin. And here's actually the worst part about self-righteousness. It's a part of every single Christian's life at some point or in multiple points of their life. Let me tell you, I have never met a more self-righteous person than me when I started working at a church for the first time. Because when I started working at a church for the first time in 2016, while my friends were doing whatever they could to make the most amount of money possible or impress this girl or impress that girl, I was able to say, I work at a church. Look how good I am. I quickly became judgmental of others. I quickly believed myself to be above others. I believed that because I had dedicated my life to ministry that I was somehow better than my friends who were dedicating their lives to make as much money as they could. But what I noticed was my judgment of them quickly overtook me and suddenly I was standing in awe of myself. What'd you do last night? Got 500 bucks in tips. What'd you do? Hung out with high schoolers. I'm so much better than you. That's what I would think. I wouldn't say it, but I'd think it. But the good news is that self-righteousness is just like any other sin. The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us from it, but in order to truly receive that forgiveness, we need to truly repent, which involves turning uh, your back towards the self-righteousness that is in your life. And so maybe you've been listening tonight and you're thinking, you know what, I think Matt was actually talking about me. You know what, that's that's me. I I, I do that one thing, I do those two things, I do those three things, I do them all. I can think of even more that I do. I am the self-righteous one. 
then your first step is to do what the righteous person did in this parable. Your first step is to be like the tax collector and pray these words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then, do the opposite of the three things we talked about tonight. So the first one, realize your salvation comes from the Lord, not from what you don't do. Ask the Lord to remind you of your salvation and where it comes from. You'll quickly be reminded of what you don't deserve in Jesus, but have been given anyways because of God's mercy and grace. You don't deserve this salvation, and yet he gives it to us anyways. The second one, realize you might be the Christian that everyone is afraid to talk to. Admit that you failed to be like Jesus in this way and start inviting yourself over to other people's tables. Not with the intention of lecturing them or hitting them over the head with your Bible, but just with the intention of showing them that you love them after you actually choose to love them. And the third, realize you haven't been honest with yourself about your sin, and because of that, you haven't asked for forgiveness and repented from your sins in quite some time. Righteous people habitually confess and repent from their sin. Self-righteous people habitually remind themselves of all of the sins they don't commit. Make it a habit to be like the tax collector and plead with God. God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. See, friends, we have a great opportunity to impact a generation that is less Christian than any other generation in human history. And so I'm going to leave you with this quote by a theologian by the name of Sheldon Van Auken that my pastor growing up used to always share with us on Sundays. And I want you to take this quote, and I'm going to pray after it, and I want you to go to small groups, and I want you to think, what is the implication of that for my life? It says this, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, and their completeness. But, The strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I pray that even right now you would reveal self-righteousness in our hearts. God, I pray that you would reveal self-righteousness in my heart, Lord. If there is anywhere where I have failed to have awe of you and I've begun to have awe of myself, Lord, reveal it to me. God, reveal it to that student. Reveal it to that ninth grader, that tenth grader, that eleventh grader, that twelfth grader, Lord. Reveal it from that leader. Lord, reveal reveal it to that person that might be thinking like, not me, not me, Lord, please, not me. God, and then would we take that self-righteousness, would we turn away from it? Lord, would you turn it to righteousness as we do the opposite of those three things, Lord? Would we go into a world that is in such desperate need for your gospel, for your grace, Lord? And would we begin to tell people about your love and multiply and make disciples and see more righteousness prevail through our school systems, Lord? More righteousness in our homes and our families and our friendships, God? And, And ultimately, would we see people's lives changed for you? Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.